This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. 1 Corinthians was uh, was written to the church in Corinth. And uh, so, as uh, Pastor Matt has laid out, uh, just a quick reminder, uh, the one of the predominant religions there was um, the uh, worship of Aphrodite, uh, the, the uh, goddess of uh, fertility. And so, um, there were reports that there were up to um, a thousand prostitutes that worked in that temple on a regular basis. Um, uh, Corinth was just known synonymously synonymously with uh, um, fornication and prostitution. Uh, numerous times, Paul exhorts the church members in Corinth to flee sexual immorality. So this sermon and this, this whole letter is just infused with um, discussion around sexual practice. And so this morning, uh, there's no different than this sermon, so we'll be talking a lot about um, just the, the proper confines for uh, sexual relationships. So, um, and I wanted to just start off with, why does that matter to us today? As we know, there's uh, so much discussion in our culture about what's appropriate um, sexually, what's appropriate for marriage, this sort of thing. So again, it just goes back to the scripture. It's important for us to um, just go back to the authority of scripture and to hold on to that as Christians in order for us to glorify God and live in a God-honoring way. So that's what we're going to do um, this morning. But one more uh, word of introduction in terms of uh, how it affects our culture. There was a, a book written by Larry Hurtado and um, Timothy Keller um, did a summary of that of that book for us, and I want to highlight that before we get into the sermon, but um, Hurtado says, uh, he writes this book called Destroyer of the Gods, and what he did is he went and he tried to research why did the Christian community effectively turn uh, the, the uh, Roman culture away from the, from the gods, lowercase g, to the one true God, the living God. Um, and so he, he did some he did extensive research on this. It's in his book, Destroyer of the Gods. But in summary, uh, what came out of it was that there were five key principles that the Christians lived by that affected the culture to the point where people, you know, chose the one true God over these false gods. And so the five points are. Uh, multiracial and multi-ethnic was a value of the early church. Highly committed to caring for the poor and marginalized was a value. Non-retaliatory, marked by a commitment to forgiveness, that was a big factor. Strongly and practically against abortion and infanticide. And revolutionary regarding the ethics of sex. So if we think about those five categories, in today's thinking, uh, liberal conservative thinking, we might say the first two lean more uh, liberal, um, multiracial, multiethnic, highly committed to caring for the poor. The last two might lean 
more towards conservatives, you know what I'm trying to say, conservatism, um, strongly and practically against abortion and revolutionary sex ethic. So, um, so those might lean more conservative. And it's funny that forgiveness really doesn't really necessarily fall into any camp, but probably one of the most important elements of being a Christian community is that element of forgiveness. And so, so how does that affect our church today? And how does that affect this sermon? Well, I just want to point out that this sermon on marriage basically falls into that last category of having a revolutionary uh, sexual ethic. So as Christians today, more and more, our traditional sexual ethic on marriage between one man and one woman is being challenged. And so it's important for us as followers of Christ to hold on to that and to lift it up as, as, a, as a way that through the centuries, people have flourished. It's God's design uh, for one man and one woman to be together and to have a family. And that's the way people flourish. And so I know these will be, uh, some will take this challenging. And I know uh, that there are some, especially in this congregation, that have uh, family members that don't abide by this. And so I know that's challenging too. But for us, as Christians, it's super important for us to hold that ethic, but also to hold it in a loving way so that we can be salt and light in those situations. And we'll talk about that as well. Um, so the passage that we have before us today deals with some specific marriage issues that we'll try, and we'll try to apply some of these principles to some of the challenges that we have currently in our culture. So with this in mind, let us dig into the scriptures. Excuse me. There is a uh, there should be an outline printed on the back of your bulletin, <clears throat> which breaks it down for you. But we're going to be in three categories. So the first is guidelines for marriage, verses one through five. So let's do that. I'm going to go ahead and read that now. Uh, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what is going on? Like I said earlier, when I first read this, I was like, what is going on? What is this uh, talking about? Um, so verse one and two give us a little bit of a clue. Verse one says, now concerning the matters which you wrote, so it's basically saying that uh, there was a previous letter from the Corinthian church that was a new church, and they were basically asking for advice about what was going on. So there was a letter written to Paul, so he's addressing that. So he says, you know, previously in the matters that you wrote, and then he quotes the letter from them. He's quoting them. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
And then he addresses the issue. So we might, so we might consider it, we might understand it better if, um, if we considered it as a question. Um, they are asking, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? So why would they be asking this question? Well, as I talked about earlier, you know, the Corinthian church was so riddled with uh, sexual immorality that there were those in the church that were trying to effectively like say, well, let's get rid of all sexual, sexual immorality, so let's just do away with all sex. And so there tends to be this overreaction, uh, which is consistent in scripture. There's other points in scripture where we'll talk about that too. But if you've heard the expression, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? Where you just, you get so frustrated with something, you just say, let's just get rid of all of it, right? And so uh, Paul is tempered in his approach and so is Jesus dealing with this matter. But, but I think that, uh, I think what they were doing is just saying, Hey, we want to be—we want to be as pure and holy as we as we should be. What should we do? Should we just completely stop having sex altogether? And so he says, he says, no. Um, in a way, he says, if you're the first part of that verse is addressed to a man and a woman. So in an unmarried situation, so the answer would be yes. In an unmarried situation, it would be good. For a man not to have sex with a woman but later he jumps right to in verse 3 he jumps right to the fact that but if you uh, verse 3 he says um, or verse 2 right there it says but because of the temptation to sexual immorality each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband so he jumps right to marriage so it's basically saying abstinence outside of marriage is the way to go and then inside of marriage, he says, uh, yes, green light go. Okay, so, um, so I'm kind of summarizing, so I gotta catch up with my notes here. Um, so what happens is that he, he drives us towards marriage and, the, and what's, what is uh, really countercultural is that he says that each man should have his own wife and each wife should have his her own husband and specifically one and so when we think about uh, honoring God think about it as driving down Walnut Grove or uh, Sango which is where I live and there's a road and you want to stay on the road because on the side of the road there's ditches and I've driven down those roads many times and I've seen cars off on the ditch right so one of the ditches when it comes to this is just to say well, I'm just going to be single, and I'll just have sexual relations with whoever I want, and that doesn't matter. And so that's a ditch. We don't want to go down that road. The other ditch would be to have multiple wives um, and uh, polygamy. So think of polygamy was a big deal. But more subtly is uh, what Moses dealt with, with the people of God saying, hey, I'm just going to give my wife a certificate of divorce and then I'll just marry this other woman for no cause. And so Jesus says, no, that's not right either. You know, you want to stay with, the, stay with your married partner. That's the goal, okay? That's how we're going to glorify God the most. So Paul's argument 
is definitely in favor of one spouse, which, you know, that would be what we would consider our traditional values here. But it also stems from the Old Testament. So from the very beginning, this is the sexual ethic, and this is where it's consistent all the way through. So um, Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them, and it was very good. And then Genesis 2.24, which is like the, the premier marriage verse, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so that word flesh there uh, has a lot of meanings, right? So flesh, they be, two become one flesh, kind of reminds us of what might happen on the wedding night where you consummate the marriage, two become one. But it also has a deeper, richer meaning where the two individual people become one person. And so they're, they're really united in their marriage. They really become one, one person, one unit that uh, seeks to uh, live for and glorify God together and encourage one another in that way. And uh, so this is pretty radical, even, even these days, when you look at the, the rights that Paul lays out here in verse 3 and 4, he talks about the conjugal rights that the, that the woman has rights, her conjugal rights for the man, and then the man likewise has conjugal rights for the woman. And then it says that um, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise the husband does not have authority over her own body, but the wife does. So this is remarkable symmetry in, when you think about a marriage relationship, you think there's, there should be this mutual giving of, giving of oneself in a mutual way. Um, so it goes against the old saying, some of you may have heard this, um, uh, uh, when it, uh, a marriage, a married couple, and one of the, one of the married couples will say, one of the, you know, one of the people in the couple will say, what's yours is mine, and what's mine is mine too. <laughs> you know, that, there's kind of that underlying selfish attitude of, yeah, yeah, we're married, but what's mine is mine, and what's yours is mine, and it's all mine. It's all selfish, right? But in, the, in Paul's vision for marriage and God's vision, vision for marriage, it's a beautiful symmetry that you, uh, both of what you have belongs to the other in, a, in an equal way. Oh, I got to take a breath. Whew. This is a heavy topic. So um, I rely, this book, Timothy Keller, uh, the meaning of marriage. Uh, I relied heavily upon this. So, and I want to encourage you. Uh, I I know I'm looking at you. There are a lot of single folks out here um, this morning, and I want to encourage you. And I'm going to talk about it right now. But Tim Keller does a great job of laying out the value of what you uh, of who you are and the position that you're in right now. And he calls it a gift. And so. Um, so this sermon is just as much for singles as it is for married couples. But that first part 
was primarily about uh, Mary. But anyway, a lot of what I'm talking about comes out of this book. I highly recommend it for those who are married and those and those who are single. Um, so Tim Keller, he says about marriage, he says, in love, they donate themselves wholly to the other. They donate themselves wholly to the other. Um, let's see. So, um, so let's jump to the big question that uh, couples often ask is um, uh, how often should married couples have sex? So uh, again, now marriage is a complex entity, right? When you bring two people together as one and you wholly share um, each other. Um, and so there are a myriad of different things we could talk about, but because of, because of this, the text, we're, we're just gonna ask this one question about marriage, okay? So, um, so I'm not claiming that this is the ultimate uh, most important thing, but this question does come up a lot. Uh, how often should married couples have sex? The answer is regularly. And um, now I know that, um, uh, let's see, so sometimes uh, one spouse, you know, likes to exercise their conjugal rights more often than the other, so there can be tension, right? Um, but uh, Keller argues in the book, he argues um, that because sex is ultimately the uniting of two married people, and it is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being, so it should be done regularly. He also says that sex is God's appointed way for a man and a woman to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you, so it should be done regularly. The Apostle Paul thinks it's so important that he says it should, it should only be withheld by mutual agreement and only for a set time and only in super important reason, for super important reasons like prayer. So um, additionally, at the, in verse 5, there's a spiritual warning too that this is where Satan will attack you if you're married and you're withholding sexual relations Satan can attack your marriage in this spot. So super important to think about um, regular sex with your spouse. Now, I know that's just kind of a, so funny just listening to myself say that up here in the pulpit. But that's what Paul says. That's what the Bible says. So we're going with that. <clears throat> but uh, so let me give you a couple examples. So there's some couples I know that uh, they have a, they're super committed to a Friday night date night. Regular, like, hey, we're, as a couple, we are committed. We're getting a babysitter, we're going out Friday night. I know another couple um, years back, not really friends with them that much anymore, but, but for whatever reason, I was having a beer with the, with, the man, with the husband and we were talking about sex. And he said, he said, um, he said, yeah, my wife and I, we, we covenant to have sex every Sunday afternoon. And that's, we just, that, that's a covenant that we have, and we keep that unless we agree to not do that. 
So, so I'm thinking, well, you know, <laughs> roses, spontaneity, where is that, right? But, but they had it right. The biblical sexual challenge is that there should be regular uh, coming together between a husband and a wife, unless decided not to. So I think that's a challenge for our current cultural um, perspective. So just something, something to think about this Sunday afternoon. <clears throat> okay, so moving on. Okay, so, so now we're moving on to part, part two. Now I'll try to go through this a little quicker, but part two is, breaks down into three parts. Okay, so verse six and seven set up the next three paragraphs in the text. Okay, so, um, so let's dig into those. So it says, now, um, and this is to the unmarried and the widows. So now as concerning, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So what he just said there is that the next three parts that he's going to talk about, he considers a gift. Okay? So he has the gift of being single. Other people have the gift of being married. Other people have a gift of being widowed. Um, it's all a gift from God. So he sets it up as a gift. So verse 8, To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than be aflame with passion. So in these verses and the subsequent verses in chapter 7, Paul argues that it is good to remain single as long as the person is content with that and doesn't burn with passion. So while marriage provides um, so much blessing and structure for our lives and our culture, it does also provide challenges that can pull our focus away from serving the Lord. Paul says marriage can provide worldly troubles, but he is realistic about the fact that God has created each of us as sexual beings and some burn with passion more than others. Now we all know there are lots of reasons to marry, such as security, companionship, intimacy, family, love, children, but because this letter is focusing on the concerns in the Corinthian church, he addresses people's sexual passion as the primary topic. So if you are content with being single, great, but if you burn with passion, then get married, and that's good too. So let's uh, go back to the unmarried. So, so this is super important. If you are unmarried, you can listen now. Okay, it says the new... The new Christian church that is being formed in Corinth is revolutionary because its reality is that if you are part of God's family, you don't need to be married to have a respected and fruitful life. <clears throat> in, in Tim Keller's book, he describes that historically nearly all ancient religions and cultures made an absolute value of family and the bearing of children. There was no honor without family honor, and there was no real lasting significance or legacy without leaving heirs. So without children, you essentially vanished and had no future. The main hope for the future was to have children. In ancient cultures, 
long-term singles, adults were considered to be living a human life that was less than fully realized. But, listen, but this is not so for the Christian faith. So for those who are entering in this journey with Christ, Jesus himself, who was called the perfect man, was single. And Paul, who was one of the greatest evangelists of all time, was single. And he assessed that being single was a blessed position, and in some circumstances, even better than being married. So it is with the early church, singleness was not discouraged, and widows actually were supported actively by the church. So Christians who remained single then were making the statement that their futures were not dependent on families and children, but on God. And God would provide them with the brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers through church, the body of Christ, which I just have to comment on how Woodland is just so unique in that, in that I feel like we have a large percentage of singles here, and, and that is a good thing because um, you have found a home here to be a part of the body of Christ, to be a part of the family of God, and that is as it should be. Um, so, um, so just one quick uh, illustration um, about being married and being single. Uh, so my grandmother, uh, we called her Grandmother Peg. Uh, she grew up in Pennsylvania. She was a Presbyterian. She married, and she was married for 40 years. She had three kids, and her, um, her husband passed away. And so then she lived with her mother for about another 15 years until she passed away. So she was, um, she was content married. She was a deacon in the Presbyterian Church. Then she was unmarried for 15 years um, and cared for her mother. And then after her mother passed away, she moved to a, a retirement community and met a, a wonderful man. And they married at the age of 80. And then they were, so they were married for about five years until he passed away. And then, um, and then she passed away a couple years later again uh, as a single woman. So, um, so married, unmarried, married, content in the Lord the whole journey. So, uh, so something to be, something to think about. Um, and then real quick, uh, the last portion of this part, um, verses 10 11, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So Paul's message is completely consistent with Jesus's message. If you remember uh, from Matthew 19, Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees and they said, you know, should we divorce? They were asking the men, should the men divorce their wives? And uh, Jesus says, no, you shouldn't. And then the Pharisees say, well, why did Moses say it was okay? And he says, because your hearts were hard. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. And he points back to Genesis and he says that um, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So again, the consistency is there. And so this last part is just addressing if you're un unhappily married, 
you know, we as a church, we want to help make that marriage happy as best we can. If we can't and there's divorce, we want to leave that door open for reconciliation because we have a God of reconciliation and he's all about changing hard hearts into soft hearts so that that a reconciliation can happen and that's a it's a beautiful picture of the gospel um so that was uh that was unhappily married and then the last part 12 through 16 is um unequally yoked and unequally yoked meaning um so say uh say you're corinthian and you're married and you're both worship you're polytheists and then, and then your spouse becomes a Christian and only, only worships uh, the one true Lord. Well, God is saying in this situation, he's saying the, the one who is the true believer should stay in the marriage if the unbeliever agrees. If the unbeliever doesn't agree and is unhappy, then the believer should let that spouse go because ultimately peace is more powerful. But his big point in this last section is that the, the holiness of the believer is more powerful than the, than the unholiness of the unbeliever. He doesn't use that word unholiness, but the, the impact of the believing spouse is greater than the impact of the unbelieving spouse. So if you find yourself in a situation where you're married to an unbeliever, then God is encouraging you to stay in that relationship because there's there's holiness and there's, there's a process of sanctification that occurs by bringing the power of the gospel into your home in a way that wouldn't be there if you left. And so, so that's a, uh, obviously that's a challenging road to drive, but that's what God is calling you to and he calls it a gift. And then, um, so just a a real life illustration. So um, one of my dad's best friends, uh, he was, he got married to a woman and they were both not Christian. And then he became a Christian. And then, uh, so he was really devout in his faith. His wife finally just got to the point where she just said, you know, I just, I just can't do this. I don't believe in Christianity. I just can't do this anymore. So they divorced. um, And then and then he ended up marrying a really devout Christian, and they had a you know beautiful uh, marriage. And I would definitely describe their home as a home of peace. Like I felt when I was go to their home, I always felt so much peace and love and joy in that place because they were united in Christ, and that was their singular focus. Um, so there is provision uh, for. Separation. Uh, the Bible says, uh, you know, if it's unbeliever, believer, there's separation there. Try to stay in it if you can. And then uh, the other provision is for sexual immorality to leave, to leave the marriage. Um, but again, this is not supposed to be an extensive sermon on all of marriage and all the issues. So, um, so I have to give that caveat. But um, the beautiful thing about all this, bringing it all together, is that the gospel is like a marriage. Um, the, gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is to marriage as marriage is to the gospel. We see the gospel lived out in marriage and we see the gospel lived out through Jesus Christ. Um, 
We see marriage lived out through Jesus Christ. So the marriage covenant combines a man and a woman so deeply making two individuals into one. Paul calls this a profound mystery. In Ephesians 5.32, he says, this joining of two into one is also used to describe the church. In Ephesians 5.20-28, Christ is described as the head of the church, and the church is described as his body and his bride. So we are his bride. Isaiah, from the Old Testament, Isaiah says, uh, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So referring to the church, God's people, as the bride. And one more, it's in Revelation, it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So that's referring to Jesus and the church. <clears throat> With Christ's life, death on the cross, and his resurrection, Jesus became the living embodiment of the bridegroom and a faithful husband who was willing to give up his life for the, one he, for the ones he loved. <clears throat> As it's written in 2 Corinthians, it says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Through Christ's sacrifice, intimacy with the Father can be restored and sins forgiven. Through Christ's atonement, we are presented to God with the purity of a virgin on her wedding day. So, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, we are the bride of Christ. You were purchased with the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we have been adopted as sons and daughters into his family. So whether you're married or single, um, it's a gift from God. And you have been called into this family. And so it's good that uh, if you are in Christ, then you are part of his family. And as we uh, celebrate communion now, we want to be reminded that you were bought with a price. Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for our sins. He lived the perfect life for us so that we would be that radiant bride adorned in her jewels on her wedding day, ready to receive her king. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.